0: Thank you, men. Rejoice in glorious hope. Our Lord and Judge shall come. That is our theme this morning. Would you open your Bibles, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Two weeks ago, from verses 9 through 12, Brother Flegel opened a text that said, We're doing well. Keep it up. It was a text about encouragement. This text is about comfort. By the way, Pastor Randy tried to bribe me to mention the Pie Fellowship. So now I guess Dr. Marriott and I have to split it. All right. yeah. So, so uh, it's, it's tonight at 7. All right. There you go. As has been mentioned repeatedly in this series, uh, the chapter divisions, of course, are not original with Paul, but in the eight chapters in our Bibles, in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, the return of Christ is mentioned in every one. It's probably not oversimplifying too much to say that during the short time that Paul was in Thessalonica, his, his teaching revolved around the gospel, faith, the Christian life, love, and the return of Christ, hope. And the one that gets mentioned the most is hope, probably because this church was born in persecution and suffering. And Paul is concerned about these people, and he is writing to buttress their hope. And in fact, he has so emphasized in his ministry among them that Jesus Christ is going to return and it could be any minute and he is going to rescue us and it's going to be a glorious appearing and we are going to join Christ. That these Thessalonians are a little concerned that in the short time since Paul arrived and they embraced the gospel, some of their loved ones have died and they're afraid they're going to miss the return of Christ. Now that may seem like a strange concern to us, but these are young believers in a pagan culture who have not been saved for long, and they're concerned about their loved ones. Oh no! Grandma, who was dying of this strange disease, we we know it's cancer, got saved. And so she was going to participate in the return. And she's died. She's going to miss it. It's bitterly disappointing. And so Paul writes this paragraph, verses 13 to 18, to comfort the Thessalonians concerning their saved loved ones who have parted. And to say, no, if you have the whole story, you will not grieve in this way. Now, I am going to avoid, for the most part, in my short time, giving a thorough eschatology lesson here. I want us to get the comfort that Paul is giving But let me preface by saying that over in 2 Thessalonians, so I'm still in introduction, but I think it's important. So over in 2 Thessalonians, Paul is going to reveal that he has studied Daniel and the other prophets. He's familiar with Christ's teachings at the Olivet Discourse. And Paul believes that in the future, a man of sin is going to appear. We know him from Revelation as Antichrist or the beast in Revelation, he is going to appear. And there's going to be worldwide apostasy, and there's going to be horrible persecution and signs and wonders. And there's going to be horrible judgments poured out on earth. And then, Christ is going to return to establish his kingdom. And so the question is, did Paul teach the Thessalonians that they're going to live through all that, and then be raptured at the second coming, or are they going to be raptured before all that occurs? Now, on the one hand, and this is a popular teaching today, Paul went to them and taught that Christ is coming back after a period of intense persecution, if he read Daniel correctly, for seven years, and the reign of Antichrist, and a third of the world's population being massacred, and horrible cataclysmic judgments. And then Paul leaves town and Grandma dies, and Thessalonians say, oh no, Grandma's going to miss all that. Really? Or maybe Paul taught that before that return of Christ, the first stage is going to be Christ ascending from heaven into the clouds and our being caught up together with him and being raptured away before the judgments fall. Now, if that's an event you wouldn't want to miss. In other words, if Paul did not teach the imminent return of Christ before all the cataclysmic events he talks about in 2 Thessalonians, this concern of the Thessalonians makes no sense whatsoever. It would be better to die before the tribulation fell if you're not going to be alive when Christ raptures. And so he's presupposing a rapture here, and this ends up being the most significant text in the New Testament on the rapture. Not the only one, but the most significant one. Because they are not looking for Antichrist. And neither are we. They're looking for Christ. And Antichrist is going to come. Tribulation is going to come. But we're not going to be here to see it. And so he's going to comfort these people. He's going to give them great news. Your loved ones who have died prior to the return of Christ are in fact not disadvantaged in any way. Because even though they died, they're not going to miss it. That's the comfort. Now, my sermon outline, I I considered giving you a slide with it. I don't need to. Look at your Bibles, and you'll see it right here. Paul outlined this sermon for us. Verse 13 is his thesis. Having right knowledge of the end times brings great comfort. And then he proves the thesis. Verse 14, for, and that word for means because. And then he gives the first reason That we can have great comfort when we know the end times. Verse 15 is his second argument. For, because, and then he gives another reason. Verse 16 and 17. For, and then he gives another reason. And then verse 18. Therefore, be comforted. So a thesis, three arguments that are related to one another, and then a conclusion. And that's what we're going to work our way through here this morning. So first, the thesis. But... I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. You need the whole story. Let's suppose that a big assignment got canceled in your college class and you missed the announcement. And you're going to spend the entire weekend working on that assignment. How much comfort would it bring to you to have correct knowledge of the situation? To know the whole story. Knowledge brings comfort. And when Paul writes here... I would not have you ignorant. That is a very common first century expression. It does not imply criticism. He's not saying stop being ignorant. It is an expression that almost always launches a clarification. I don't want you to not know the whole story. I want you to have the details that will be necessary for you to be comforted. Concerning, and by the way, he addresses them as brethren, I would not have you to have a lack of understanding, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. He refers to these loved ones who have passed away as being asleep. Now it turns out that when you study Greco-Roman times, sleep as a metaphor for death was extremely common. They talked about people falling asleep in death all the time. But the Christians just seized this metaphor. In fact, Jesus Christ uses it. Remember he talks about Jairus' daughter sleeping. He talks about Lazarus sleeping. And what does he do in both cases? He wakes them up. The pagans would talk about, "Our uncle has gone off into endless sleep." But the Christians grabbed that metaphor and said, "It works better for our worldview than for yours, because they're going to wake up. There is going to be a great awakening that is coming. Our bodies are in the grave, but not permanently. Now, let me just mention that he's not teaching soul sleep. Over in in chapter 5 of this chapter, he is going to say the believers live together with him whether they wake or sleep. In 2 Corinthians, he's going to say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. In Philippians, he says, I'm willing to depart from this body in order to be with the Lord. So, The comfort of the metaphor is not soul sleep. Soul sleep is in fact a heresy that is used by cults to deny that Jesus is God. But our bodies go into the ground and it seems so final. When we lose a loved one, it seems like a termination, like an end. And the blessed hope is that they're just sleeping. They're just sleeping. They're going to be awakened. And so... Paul gives us a command relative to those loved ones. And I don't know, at your age, what saved loved ones you have lost. I don't know how fresh or raw this is for you, but everyone in the gym, unless the Lord comes back real soon, is gonna need this comfort. I've needed it in recent days. And Paul says, concerning those which are asleep, do not sorrow. And you say, what? It looks like a command. Do not sorrow. And if there was a hard stop right there, we would be saying, Lord, if you command it, you can give me grace to do it. But I don't know how I'm going to do that. I mean, there's a certain inevitability, a certain unavoidability about the sorrow that comes. Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb. And I'm not inclined to think he was weeping because of hard hearts and because of unbelief. That may have contributed to what he was weeping because he saw the grief of his dear friends and the loss of their brother and his own grief. Even though he knew, he's going to wake up. But Paul doesn't say, do not grieve, hard stop. He says, do not grieve as those who have no hope. Now, I apologize, this illustration is a little trivial considering the weight of the subject, but hopefully it captures the idea. Let's suppose dinner's in an hour, and I gather my teenage kids around, and I have, my, my wife is just, I was about to say I did it, that would not be good. My wife has just baked a tray of fresh chocolate chip cookies. I could say, do not eat the cookies, hard stop. All right, well, there's, that kind of tears hope out of your heart. And it's probably impossible with these teenagers unless I stand there guarding the tray. Or I can say, do not eat the cookies as though dinner's not in an hour. That would be an implied permission, wouldn't it? That would be saying, you can eat the cookies, but make sure you eat them with awareness of the whole story. Make sure you eat them in light of the fact that you're going to have a great dinner in an hour. Don't eat 17 cookies, you're going to have dinner in an hour. But eating cookies is acceptable, And in fact, you and I, when someone passes away, experience loss. Paul doesn't deny that. Paul himself in Philippians says that God spared Epaphroditus, and if he hadn't, I would have had sorrow on top of sorrow. I would have missed Epaphroditus. I love being with him. Paul's point in this text is not that we don't suffer loss. His point in this text is that they don't suffer loss. The pagans have no hope. I read a couple commentaries who really wrestled with this idea of pagans having no hope. Because it turns out when you read pagan literature, they're constantly saying hopeful things about death. And some of these pagans believed that the soul lives on. They didn't believe in resurrection, but they believed the soul lives on after death. So they had some sense of hope. And they say, well, Paul's probably... What Paul is doing here is he's not talking about just subjective feelings of hope. He's talking about objective, real hope. And no matter how the pagan feels about death, if you're a pagan, you have no hope. Why? Because whatever they believe, it's not true unless they're in Christ. They're going to live on, but they're going to live on eternal conscious torment. And that is a hopeless destiny. So these pagans, whatever they think, whether they're Epicureans and think they go back to the atoms, or whether they're uh, Platonists who believe their spirits they are hopeless. There's only one place of hope, and that's in Christ. But our, our loved ones who trusted in Christ, they've lost nothing. Say, yeah, but, but they're going to miss the rapture. Well, actually, they're not. So let's see the arguments beginning in verse 14. Because, here's why we should not sorrow as the pagans who have no hope, Concerning our sleeping loved ones. Because if we believe, you're looking at your Bibles, please, verse 14. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, there's the foundation. That's the foundation of hope. Jesus died and didn't stay dead. He rose. He conquered death. He defeated death. For all who are in him. That's the foundation of the Christian faith. Now Paul is not saying that's the whole of the gospel. Jesus had to be God and man. He had to die as a sacrifice for our sins. We must trust in him. There's a great deal involved. But at the very heart of it all is a central event. And that event is Jesus Christ defeating death. And he uses an if form which implies that it is true of these Thessalonians. If, as is the case. He's not, he's assuming the truth of this. If, as is true of you. Now, some translations translate it since Jesus died and rose again. Well, that's kind of the thought, but that's not, I mean, there's another way to say since. Why would you say, if, as is the case? Well, I could say to you all right now, if, as is the case, you're listening carefully. Well, I'm assuming it's true of you. But I'm also encouraging you to listen carefully by being one of the ifs. Hey, that is true of me. So Paul says, if, Jesus Christ, we believe Jesus died and rose again. Do you believe it? That is your only hope. And that is the only hope for your believing loved one. That Jesus died and rose again. If we believe that, we have comfort. Tremendous comfort. Pagans try to deal with death in a variety of ways. Um, Pretty much against my will and better judgment, some years ago I watched the uh, film version of Bridge to Terabithia. Well... The only thing that did for me was give me this illustration. (laughs) The whole movie is trying to communicate that there's comfort in the fact that you're going to remember that loved one. And as long as you're remembering them and treasuring them in your heart, they live on in some mystical, mysterious, subjective pattern in your life. And therefore, the human race will never die because they live on in our... That's a bunch of nonsense. Nonsense. It's psychobabble. And then they have the gall to turn around and look at us and say, you believe in resurrection as just kind of a panacea, you know, you're just trying to deal with your fear of death. Well, no. Jesus died and rose again. Christians actually know we're going to live again. We actually know that that loved one we lost is going to be forever in heaven with us in a glorified body. We, if, if, as is the case, Jesus died and rose again, then this is not a pipe dream. Christ is risen from the dead and become the first fruit of them that sleep. And he says, even so, those who sleep in Jesus, those who sleep in Jesus. Now, if you've read Paul, you know that he uses in Jesus, in Christ language literally hundreds of times in his writings. But that's not what we have here. He uses a preposition here that literally means through. Dia for you who who are into the Greek. We believe that those who sleep through Jesus. Isn't that awesome? They fell asleep through Jesus. They are asleep through Jesus. Jesus was with them as they were dying. Jesus was with them in death. Jesus is with them now, and Jesus will never leave them. They sleep through Jesus. It's an awkward way to translate it, so most of the translations don't choose to do it, but it is a rich and beautiful truth. So be comforted. Be comforted about them. Be comforted yourself as you contemplate death. Jesus doesn't leave us And then it says, those who sleep through Jesus, God will bring with him. That's our hope. He could have said, if we believe Jesus died and rose again, even those who sleep through Jesus, God will also raise. He's going to make that point in the next couple of verses. But instead, he uses a surprising verb. A verb, by the way, that non-dispensationalists really struggle with. I read commentary after commentary getting this wrong. It says, I will lead them. He will bring them. And the idea seems to be that when Jesus comes, he's going to be up in heaven and he's going to say, gather around everybody. We're going back to get your bodies. And he's going to lead them down to the clouds. And they're going to fetch their bodies out of the graves. And they're going to be reunited. So don't grieve. Your loved ones are not going to miss Christ's return. But now he gives a little bit more specificity to that, a second reason in verse 15. Because, for, this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. This does not directly agree with any sayings of Jesus in the Gospels. He never talks about this being caught up into the clouds. Therefore, this is probably a revelation that Paul received. Literally says, this we say by a word of the Lord. That. So by divine revelation... He says, We which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent. And what does that word prevent mean? It means to proceed or go before. To proceed or go before. And you can see how the English word could have changed meanings. You can prevent somebody by getting in front of them and being ahead of them. So this is proceeding. And Paul breaks everybody up, believers, into two groups. There are those who are alive and remain. And how does he describe them? What pronoun does he use? We. We. That's what he taught the Thessalonians. It's only been months since he was in Thessalonica, certainly less than a year. And he has taught them that we shall be alive and remain. Many of us, until the coming of Christ, look for it, expect it. There's no space in there for seven years of tribulation. Paul just keeps on believing this. In 2 Corinthians 5, he's going to talk about his hope of being transformed before he dies. uh, That's about five years after he wrote this. Five or six years after he writes 2 Corinthians, he writes Philippians. And he's still hoping to be alive when Christ returns. Three to four years after he wrote Philippians, he wrote Titus. And he's still hoping to be alive. He's still using this first-person pronoun about the return of Christ. And then he gets to 2 Timothy. And finally, he figures he's probably going to be executed by the Romans. But even there, he says, I am one of those who love his appearing." This is an imminent hope. And so you and I may be in this group of those who are alive and remain until his return. Do you believe that? Every generation of Christians has been taught to believe that. We, who are alive and remain, that is part of our blessed hope. But then, there's the other group. And he says, they are the ones who are asleep. The ones that the Thessalonians are worried about. Oh no, our our beloved loved ones who have died are going to miss. And Paul says, not not only are they not going to miss, but they get first dibs. He says, when the Lord returns, they who are asleep are going to be gathered together. They're going to go ahead of us at the coming of the Lord. They're going to precede us. Now, if you're a little bit concerned about that, the whole thing goes down in a twinkling of an eye, so it's not going to be like a long wait. But the dead in Christ rise, and then we who are alive rise. We don't need to grieve our departed loved ones. Not only do they participate in the rapture, but they have dibs in the rapture. No disadvantage. And then there's a third reason, beginning of verse 16. Four, and now Paul, he elaborated a little bit more in 15, what he said in 14. Now in 16 and 17, he's going to elaborate a lot. He's going to tell us what this event is going to look like. Do not grieve, because the Lord himself shall descend from heaven. Just stop right there. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven. In one of my classes yesterday, we were over in John 17, about how Christ, in his high priestly prayer, prays to the Father and says, Lord, it's my desire that those that you have given me will be with me. That is, that's that's why he came to this earth. That's why he died on the cross. That's why he ascended and is interceding. Because he wants to be with us. And someday, he's going to come for us. He promised my uh, parents would sometimes send my brother to give me messages in the upstairs bedroom. And I figured when my brother came, it was my parents' authority, so it was important. But then every so often, mom or dad in person would show up at the door. And there was a heightened expectation. There was, a, all right, this, this I better really lock into this. Jesus doesn't have to do it this way. He could just from up in heaven say, y'all come now, and we'd all, we'd all head to heaven. But instead, he comes to the clouds to get us. He himself descends. I believe this is showing how passionate he is about bringing us to himself in person. And then there's all this accompanying fireworks. Notice three things it says. He descends from heaven with a shout. That is a one-time only in the Bible word. That word occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. And it's a word which is attested in Hellenistic Greek that basically means to utter a command to gather people. Let's suppose you're in Crazy Chapel and everybody's just not really listening. This is the voice that one of the student body officers would use to get you all to sit down. He would shout, but it would be like, all right, you know what it would be like. Couch says it is a classical and military term meaning to command, And it is used for the purpose of gathering together. Who's being gathered together? Dead people and live people. Globally. It's quite a shout. And possibly it's what the archangel says. Maybe, maybe not. He goes on to say with a shout and with the voice of the archangel. There's only one archangel mentioned directly in scripture. Anybody know what his name is? Michael, yes, Michael mentioned in Jude and in Daniel. Daniel may imply there are other archangels, but none of them are named. But the archangel, who's coming along with Christ, gets to the clouds, and then, you know, if if, if Jamin were to say to one of his subordinates, hey, hey, get everybody together here, shout. uh, That wouldn't mean Jamin's incapable of it. It would just mean for whatever reason he is letting a subordinate do it. And Christ here says to the archangel, You've been waiting a long time for this. Let let loose. And the archangel gives the voice. And then that's not enough. And then there's a trumpet. And with the trump of God. Now there are a lot of trumpets that blow in the end times. There are the seven trumpet judgments. There there are a, a trumpet will blow at the second coming, we're told. But this is almost certainly... The last trump that the church age hears. It is the trump of 1 Corinthians 15. I show you a mystery, we shall not all sleep. Not all of us will die before the Lord returns. But we shall all be changed. We shall all be glorified. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. And we will be changed. We will receive those glorified bodies. So you got a shout, a voice, and a trumpet. And it literally raises the dead. My wife's church, way, way back in the 70s, had a guest speaker one day who was known to them. I think he had grown up in the church, but now he was an evangelist, and they had him back in to preach. And he decided he was preaching on the rapture. And he was he was a fiery preacher who really got into it, and he's kind of rip snorting. And at one point. He says, and the trump shall sound. And what they didn't know is he had put a guy up in the balcony with a trumpet. And just as he says that, about 40 minutes into this message, this guy just lets loose with this massive trumpet blast. Well, the good news is no one died of a heart attack. I, uh, I did not ask Joel Montgomery to do that this morning. And preacher boys-to-be, don't do things like that. You know, that's... But one thing I can tell you, everybody woke up. (laughs) The room was alive after that. Well, the Trump's going to go. It's going to blow. And the dead in Christ will rise. Thessalonians, don't worry about that loved one. If they died through Christ, they're just sleeping. And they're going to wake up. And they are going to participate in this. They're going to be involved. The dead in Christ shall rise, first of all. Then, we which are alive and remain shall be caught up. Right, that word caught up, well, I'll, I'll read Hebrew. The verb caught up denotes a sudden and forcible seizure, an irresistible act of catching away due to divine activity. It might also be rendered snatch-up, sweep sweep up, carry off by force. I'll I'll interrupt the quote. This word occurs over in Acts when the Jews are beating up Paul in the temple courtyard and the Romans come down from the the Antonia Fortress and they catch up Paul and and carry him up the steps. They snatch him away from being beaten to death. Well, we're going to be caught up. He goes on to say the Latin for the Greek word is rapturo, from which we derive our English word rapture. So when somebody says rapture is not in the Bible, well, it kind of (laughs) is. This caught up is being raptured. It's being snatched away. There are many second coming passages. And they describe Jesus Christ ascending to the Mount of Olives and putting his feet there, destroying his enemies, the Antichrist, and the false prophet gathering the believers from across the globe, setting up his throne to pass judgment on the sheep and goats, establishing an earthly kingdom. Nowhere in any of those passages do we read of believers being caught up to the heavens with Christ, and none of those elements are here. This seems to be a very different event. And in fact, we're told that both living believers and those that sleep will be caught up together. With them in the clouds. Yeah, I miss my mom. I miss my dad. I miss several uncles and aunts. I I miss loved ones. I've lost two dear friends to COVID, as many of you have. But I haven't lost them. They're sleeping, they fell asleep through Jesus. And one day, shout, voice, trumpet, we're going to be caught up together. We're going to meet Christ in the clouds. Let me very briefly address two quick issues that people get wrong in this text. Those who believe you go through the tribulation say, look, clouds. Daniel says Christ is coming in the clouds to establish his kingdom. Jesus said when the Son of Man comes in the clouds. So when you see a reference to clouds, that means this is the second coming at the end of all things. To which I would reply that the point of those passages is that he first appears in the clouds on his way to this earth. Paul knows we might make that mistake. And so look what he says. We shall be caught up together with him in the clouds, and then what do we do? We meet the Lord in the air. The clouds here are not just what Christ is passing through and becoming visible. The clouds here are where the whole thing takes place. We meet him there. And then the other argument they make is from the word meet. You read most commentaries being written right now and they'll say, hey, this word meat is only used two times in the New Testament. In Matthew 25, 6, the virgins go out to meet the bridegroom and escort him to the wedding. In Acts 28, 15, the Romans go down and meet Paul and escort him into Rome. So what's happening here is the believers go up to the clouds and then escort Christ back down so that the rapture occurs at the second coming. That's two usages. The word meeting means, brace yourselves, meet. That is, you really can't get all that escort business from the word. In fact, one of the advocates for this, F.F. Bruce, said there is nothing in the word or in the context which demands this interpretation. It cannot be determined from what is said here whether the Lord with his people continues his journey to earth or returns to heaven. That's F.F. Bruce. He's He's not with us. Truth of the matter is, This text is clearly not a second coming text. If everyone who is a believer, those who are alive and remain, were caught up to the clouds to meet the Lord, they would receive glorified bodies. And then when they escorted him down to earth, there would be no unglorified people left to inhabit the millennium. But the Bible teaches that lots of people live through the tribulation and inherit the millennium in normal human bodies. And they've never been able to solve that problem. That's not what this text is teaching. And then we get the great goal of the Christian life as Paul closes and we do. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Our loved ones are with them now, but together with them, we shall be with the Lord forever. You say, I've been hearing this all my life and thousands of years have gone by. Is he really gonna come? Is there really comfort in this? Do you believe that Christ died and rose again? Then that risen Christ said, surely I come quickly. I come suddenly. I come in my timetable. And Paul, in Romans 13, says our salvation is nearer now than it was when we first believed. Which sounds like a super obvious thing to say. But Paul's point is that if you really believe what Jesus did and said, then every day he doesn't come back should make us more confident that he's coming back. We're one day closer. We're one day closer. So, verse 18. Be comforted. Death has had its stinger neutralized. Hope triumphs over grief. Our believing loved ones lost nothing. They are with Christ, and they will be raptured first. And we, who are alive and remain, shall be with them But more importantly, we shall forever be with our Lord. Are you comforted? If you believe, there's no way not to be comforted. Thank you, Lord, for this text. Thank you for the truth of the rapture. Lord, we live in a day where literally most evangelicals scoff at the rapture. But Lord, that's what this text teaches it so clearly teaches it. And their explanations just don't work with Paul's logic here. These Thessalonians, they, they fear that their loved ones have missed the imminent return of Christ. Thank you, Lord, that they haven't. Thank you that no one loses who dies, who sleeps through Christ. And I pray that you would comfort our hearts regarding our loved ones who know you and regarding our own state. Because if we believe that Christ died and rose, we have great reason for comfort. And I ask these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.